We're going to be in the end of Acts chapter 7 tonight. If you have a Bible or a device with a Bible app on it, navigate over to Acts chapter 7 so you can follow along. Tim and Gerald had been friends as long as they could remember. They bonded over America's favorite pastime, baseball, playing with other neighborhood kids at the local sandlot. Tim could really hit. Gerald threw a mean fastball. They were raised in Christian homes, and so Tim and Gerald would sometimes talk about what heaven might be like. As youngsters, they made sort of a silly pact together that if one of them died, they'd come back and tell the other what heaven really was like. After years of friendship, playing baseball together through middle school and high school and college, tragically, Tim's life was cut short. But one day, a few weeks after the funeral, he showed up in Gerald's room. He said, I'm here to tell you about heaven. It was the pact after all. Gerald was excited. He said, okay, let's hear it. Tim said, well, there's good news and bad news. The good news is that there's baseball in heaven. We got a league up here. It's great. The games are never rained out. Gerald answered, that's great. What's the bad news? The bad news is that you're pitching this Friday. (laughs) Our text tonight is a sort of mix of good news and bad news. The good news is that one of God's children was going into glory to receive his inheritance, to be forever with his Lord. The other good news was that we are here at the dawn of a new thrilling era in the life of the church. Uh, This new era was beginning as the gospel would spread throughout the nation and into the wider world, exploding onto the scene like never before. The bad news is that Stephen's reward would come by means of his sudden horrific murder And this new era of church history was instigated by violent, unchecked persecution. In general, it's easier for people to focus on the bad news of life. Uh, Around the world, the news outlets have become measurably more negative since the 1970s, according to studies. Happy headlines don't sell newspapers after all. But we should notice that as the very bad unfolds for the Christians in our verses... Stephen as an individual and the church at large scattered out of Jerusalem, the good news was still good to them. And though their circumstances were entirely negative from one way of thinking, they were able to continue walking with God in fullness. They continued to progress in their relationship with him. They continued to further his message of hope to a more and more hostile world. Now, when we left off last time a few weeks ago, Stephen had just concluded his sermon to the Supreme Court of Israel. They're called the Sanhedrin. For the Sanhedrin, there was also good news and bad news that day. The good news was that the Messiah that they had been waiting for for thousands of years had, in fact, come, finally. The bad news was that they had joined the long tradition of resisting God and had, in fact, killed the Savior of the world, and Stephen had clued them into that yet again as this message of the gospel kept coming to these guys over and over and over again, not just through the ministry of Jesus, but as we've seen in these passages through the apostles as well. Verse 54 says this, when they, the Sanhedrin, heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts and gnashed their teeth at him. These days, we no longer expect that much of our nation's leaders when it comes to civility or decorum. But I really doubt any one of us can imagine Ruth Bader Ginsburg or John Roberts jumping down from the bench to personally murder a witness in their courtroom. That's what was happening here. Can you imagine such a thing? 
On that day, the pot of malice boiled over. You know, we were told in an earlier chapter when the apostles were in front of this same group of, of leaders, this same Sanhedrin, we were told that even then they were full of rage towards the Christians, and Luke uses the same word as the rage that they feel here. But that earlier time, cooler heads had prevailed as the Pharisee Gamaliel diffused the situation. He urged everyone to stay calm, but not today, not for Stephen. Having been cut to the heart by the truth of Stephen's message, they attacked him like a wounded animal would attack. In fact, Luke describes them in beastly terms as they're screaming and running and grinding their teeth in a violent frenzy. In contrast, throughout this scene, Stephen will be shockingly calm if you really look at what he's doing or not doing. It's almost as if he's unaware of what's going on all around him. That's not true, of course, but take note of how he is described in these last moments of his life. While uh, these dozens of men are swarming around him in just abject, obscene violence, uh, he's serene, he's peaceful, he's calm. While they're foaming at the mouth, he's absolutely unruffled. Why? Well, because his attention is firmly fixed elsewhere. Verse 55 says, but Stephen, filled by the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, look, I see heaven, the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. As we read these accounts, Luke wants us to know that Stephen was a man full, a man full of God. It's a term that he keeps using to describe Stephen every time he talks about him. Stephen was full of the Spirit. He was full of faith. He was full of grace and power, Luke says. He was brimming with real spirituality. Maybe you know someone in your life who uh, sort of pretends to be spiritual or, or lets you know how spiritual they are all the time because they did this or they did that. Stephen was altogether different than a sort of religious person like that. He was a man absolutely full to the brim in his relationship with Jesus Christ. It was real spirituality. And you know, that real, robust Christianity not only made him very useful in God's service, as we've seen, uh, but it also provided him with great peace and great perspective in spite of his circumstances. It made it possible for him to stand firm that day as all of this came crashing down around him. The peace of God really was ruling in his heart and guarding his mind. Paul would later write in the epistles, hey, let the peace of God rule in your heart. Let the peace of God guard your mind. And Stephen shows that it really can happen uh, for a man who's full of the Spirit. And so instead of being distracted by the circumstances he found himself in, Stephen was able to receive a spiritual vision of heaven, a, a special gift to him on his way out that day. And in it, he saw Jesus Christ standing beside the throne of God, ready to receive his servant into eternity. What an amazing image this is for us. It's a testimony to God's tender, personal care for his people. God loves you personally and individually. During the Christmas season, most of us get, you know, Christmas cards. It's a big difference between the, the, the Christmas cards you get from a loved one, someone you actually know, someone who really addressed it to you, and then, say, the doctor's office that just sends it to all of their customers, right? 
you know, did you get any of the, or the car dealer, let's go with the car dealership. The car dealership that sends you a Christmas card, come buy a new car, right? One of them is personal, one of them is not personal. One of them is very welcome and heartwarming, one of them is just so generic, you think, I walked to the mailbox for this, right? And so Jesus, the God of heaven and earth, the God of the Bible, He loves you personally. He loves you tenderly. He loves you individually. You're not just a brick in the pile. You're not just a number in a ledger somewhere. Christ here demonstrates that He was personally, as it were, taking the time to watch what was happening down on the earth. Uh, Some of the commentators describe it as looking over the battlements of heaven and just watching this Thing play out. You are not forgotten. You are not unimportant to the Lord. You are an object of His attention. You are a child that He loves, and that's a good reminder for all of us tonight. Stephen called out there for anyone to look and see the Lord in His glory. Now, it seems that this vision was just for him. I don't think that if any of the others that day looked up into the sky, and maybe some of them did, they wouldn't have seen the Lord. They would have just seen clouds in the sky But it's interesting, Stephen's invitation, even in these last moments, sort of preaching, sort of inviting people along, uh, his invitation is consistent with the attitudes of Christians in the book so far. Uh, Ministry and communion with God and the filling with His Spirit, all of these things were seen by the church to be a universal uh, offer to everyone, right? Right? It wasn't a a pay-to-play situation. It wasn't a, well, hey, the gold members can look into heaven and see, you know, a a vision of the Lord and everybody else is going to have to just see somebody else. That's not what was going on at all. It was a universal access being offered to anyone who became a member of Christ's body on the earth. All believers were included in the reservoirs of grace. All believers were invited to be a part of the work. All were delivered gifts and callings and opportunities to glorify their king. As we read the book of Acts here, we see it's very clear that there was never meant to be different classes of Christians, right? Where there were leveled up Christians and not leveled up Christians or Christians that were able to do one thing and, you know, well, I haven't gotten there yet. The apostles said, hey, we have a certain calling that the the Lord has given us, and we're going to stick with that calling. But they never showed up to a meeting and said, hey, we're apostles, you're not, and so everybody shut it and listen to us, and you guys aren't really bona fide when it comes to being members of the body of Christ. And again, Paul talks about this at length about the unity of the body and the necessity of every member of the body and how one member can't say to the other member, I don't need you or you're unimportant. And so here there's just that, that same attitude of invitation uh, where Stephen says, hey, look, check it out. Who wants to be in on this? Who wants to see into the heavenlies with me? And Stephen's call out here also reinforces what we've seen so many times already, that Christians are meant to be in the invitation business right? Here in his last moments, Stephen invites his own killers to turn their eyes upon Jesus. The church has been commanded by God to appeal to everyone, even our worst enemies, to welcome them and plead with them to join our ranks, to be born again, to understand what Jesus Christ has done for them, to to have the kind of love for them that Jesus Christ has and had for us, right? And so we want to be in the invitation business, Verse 57 says, 
And they screamed at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They threw him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. If this were an Old Testament story, we'd expect that this is the moment for God to dramatically act to rescue his child, right? As the chariots are rushing toward the bank of the Red Sea, closing in on the children of Israel, the cloud shoots down to separate them and keep the bad guys away. But here, it's as if Daniel is thrown into the lion's den and the lions eat him. That would be very strange in our experience of reading the Old Testament, right? It's not that nothing bad ever happened to God's people. It's just not what we expect. For centuries, Israel was preserved and protected in amazing ways so that the Messiah could be born through the line of Abraham and Judah and David. Now in the church age, God's people are sent out to preach the message of redemption in Jesus Christ, and we're sent with power and with grace and with the Holy Spirit. We're sent with the truth on our side, all of these wonderful uh, gifts from heaven. But in this plan that God is working out, God allows there to be casualties, real casualties, at least in the earthly sense. No one is ever snatched out of his hand. No one ever is, you know, lost that belongs to him when it comes to eternity. But in an earthly sense, a lot of casualties, starting with Stephen and moving forward every single day up until the present day in parts of the world. You know, a report conducted in 2019 and reported by various outlets like the BBC showed that Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world today and for multiple years in a row, and that Christians today are suffering at near genocide levels in certain parts of the planet. Uh, it continues. The, the list of casualties when it comes to God's people uh, on an earthly level, people suffering, people being hurt, people dying, uh, the list is growing. Now, of course, we know from what God has promised and from the record of history that the church thrives under persecution, right? Uh, we see it, whether it's the Soviet Union, whether it's communist China, whether it's a place like Iran. Uh, the, the church of Jesus Christ thrives under persecution. You can't destroy the church. The gates of hell can't prevail against the church. Paul, the man who quarterbacked the very first violent persecution against Christians and who himself suffered in, in incredible ways, would give us later the biblical perspective on suffering. He would say this in Romans, he said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And uh, nobody suffered like Paul. Perhaps that's why with his dying breath, Stephen doesn't pray for rescue. At least he doesn't pr pray for rescue for himself. He prays for rescue for someone else. He says in verse 59, they were as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. Again, the way that Luke uh, writes this, it's as if Stephen is unencumbered by the proceedings that day. Did he kneel because the rocks had knocked him down or is it because he just felt like kneeling down for one last prayer? It's not altogether clear. The whole thing can read as if he's just getting ready for a good night's sleep that he's doing his bedtime prayers before falling asleep uh, on earth and awaking in heaven. It reminded me a little bit of the climactic scene in Star Wars The Last Jedi. I would say, spoiler alert, but like the next movie's already out. So if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin something for you. 
But there, the climactic scene at the end is kind of interesting. Kylo Ren, he's the bad guy, and his evil army confront Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker standing alone on the battlefield. They unleash all their fury onto him, firing every single gun they've got. And there's explosions and lasers and all this stuff happening. And when the smoke clears, it had no effect on him. He's still just standing there. Finally, after one last lightsaber duel, it's revealed that Luke is there, but not actually there. He's just sort of hologram Luke. I don't know. Someone who's a real Star Wars fan can explain it to me later. But he's not really there. He's there, but he's not there. And though the fight does result in the end of Luke Skywalker's temporal life, if we can call that, it's clear he can't be defeated by the forces of evil. He dies peacefully uh, many planets farther away. He just kind of dies. And, and it's clear that it's not because evil has won that day. And it just reminded me a very small amount of something true and really remarkable that happened to one of God's people, Stephen. Stephen's God is strong enough and loving enough to forgive people who are guilty of even the most heinous sins. Uh, what a remarkable thing that Stephen can pray that same prayer that Jesus prayed from the cross, but he, can, he really meant it. Lord, don't just forgive them for this sin. And uh, while, of course, the Lord can't wink at sin and act like stuff doesn't happen, what an amazing God we have that God can forgive sins like that. And the good news is, indeed, in fact, God was willing to forgive these killers if they would repent. And at least one ultimately would, the man Saul, who's introduced to us here, who would become one of the most significant Christians of all time. God says, yeah, I'm willing to forgive you. All the things you did, all the people you killed, all of the Christians you brutalized, all of the sins you've committed, all of the affront against me, all of your blasphemies against Jesus Christ, the Messiah, I'll forgive them. And I'm going to take you and not just say begrudgingly, fine, I'll let you go into heaven. I'm going to take you, the worst of the worst, and I'm going to turn you into the most significant Christian maybe of all time. Augustine said this, he said, the church owes Paul to this prayer of Stephen. Pretty interesting. Stephen had withstood the Sanhedrin. He had debated in the synagogues. He had passionately held the line on the truth of Jesus Christ. But you know, he was no enemy of these people. He was no enemy of the Jews. His last breaths were given in hopes that these very people would be saved, that they would experience the same redemption that he had experienced. His full spirituality was not only characterized by effectiveness in preaching or effectiveness in serving people or strength or peace. It was also uh, characterized by compassion and real divine love for the lost, the, the kind of love that can pray for people who are actively murdering you and say, man, Lord, would you save these people too? Especially that guy who just winged that rock right into my face. Save him, Lord. Uh, amazing. Verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 8 begins this way. It says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. Now, we're not exactly sure what Saul's role was in this scene, how official it was or not. Some scholars think he was simply a bystander who was happy to keep the coats clean while this blasphemer was executed. Others suggest that he may have been the legal expert that the group referred to in some sort of hasty makeshift vote of whether they were going to stone Stephen or not. It's not altogether clear. What is clear from what follows and from Paul's own autobiography is that no one hated Christianity more than he did. 
Oh man, did he hate Jesus Christ and anyone who followed after him. It must have been a strange thing for Dr. Luke to write these words. Try to remember, this isn't written, you know, in real time. It's written many, many years later. Uh, and by the time Luke sat down to pen this account to Theophilus, Paul, Saul, was his very dear friend, a man he had traveled the world with, spent time in prison with, tended his wounds, the wounds that he received on, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And, and he has to sit down and, and write about what his friend had done before he met the Lord. Paul uh, was like a brother to him, a beloved to him. He was a man who spread the gospel like no one else into new cities, into new continents, a man who preached to governors and kings and emperors, a man who wrote much of the New Testament, a man who forfeited his own life, suffering immensely, even being stoned to death himself, ironically, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And there, I wonder if Luke was writing this section of Acts while with Paul and uh, talking to him about that and asking him, interviewing him delicately and say, hey, talk to me about that day. And uh, would have been an interesting thing to have to do, both as Luke and as Paul. Isn't it amazing what God is able to do, though, the, the kind of beauty that he can bring from absolute ashes of a person's life? You know, verse one here is full of bad news. The bad news was Saul. And he was really bad news now that he was on the scene. The good news is that in a very short time, Saul was going to be gone, erased from the pages of Scripture. And what, what happened? Paul was born. He was born again. And the Lord said, your name's Paul now, by the way. That Saul guy, he's gone. We're not even going to refer to his name hardly anymore. And now the apostle was going to come onto the scene and the Lord was going to put back together this life that had been uh, defined by death and make him an apostle of the life of the gospel, the life of Jesus Christ. Amazing. Verse 1 continues, On that day a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. The killing of Stephen had happened in a frenzy, Certainly, it was illegal, unjust. They weren't allowed to kill people under Roman rule, but guess what? Rome didn't care. You know, later when Paul goes to the city of Ephesus and the local silversmiths start a riot because they're losing some money, uh, no one's even killed. There's nothing like what we're seeing here. I mean, people are rioting, but no one's being murdered. Uh, but man, the city clerk freaks out and he runs in and he says, hey, everybody's got to cool it or we're going to be charged by the Roman government for disorderly behavior. They're going to find out we're rioting and we're going to have a real problem. Everybody go home. And everybody kind of came into their senses and says, yeah, we better get out of here before you know, the Roman centurions and all of their guys start coming in and start lopping heads off. And everybody goes home. Now listen, undoubtedly in Jerusalem, a city of unrest, a city of importance, and a city that was often going through a lot of hard things if you were trying to rule over it as the Roman government, undoubtedly the news of Stephen's murder would have made its way up the chain to the Romans, but they turned a blind eye to it, which then gave the Jewish leaders here the go-ahead to do even more to the Christians. Let's do that again and again and again and again. And what what's the response from Rome? Nothing. Silence. And so the hunt was on. 
Uh, Christians were being hunted down and no one was helping them. There was no government that stepped in and said, hey, you're not allowed to just murder people if you want to. Instead, uh, the Christians were driven out on the run, running for their lives. The church in Jerusalem had some incredible fluctuations when it comes to size. They started at the beginning of the book at about 120 people. Then suddenly one day they were 25 times larger. One day they were 120 people. The next day they were 25 times larger. Uh, A short time later, that size doubled yet again. The bad news is that just as quickly they were down to a very small handful. We're not sure if it's really just the 12, but maybe it was just the 12 for a little while until more people started getting saved again. Um, Either way, they were down to a very small number again. Now, the good news is that it didn't matter the size of the congregation. The the church was not destroyed. Luke uses a very different word. He said they weren't destroyed. They weren't crushed. They were scattered like seed into the wind. And new congregations would now begin to take root throughout Judea and Samaria, just as the Lord had prophesied. And now multiplication of the saved would increase exponentially, as there wasn't just one you know, congregation where people were being saved, but now throughout the nation and the neighboring nation, people were being saved uh, as these Christians were driven out. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and mourned, mourned deeply over him. It's unclear whether these fellows were Christians or if they were just earnest Jews who did not agree with what was happening to the Christians. The term devout men could kind of go for devout Jews, and so we're not sure. Either way, their courage and their dignity and their willingness to bury Stephen is a good reminder that devotion to God is not just something that we have. Oh, I'm devoted to God. Okay, Well, devotion to God is something that we have to express, right? It's one thing to say, oh, I'm a devout man, I'm devout. Okay, well, what do you do about it? Uh, You know, devotion is expressed like we see these men here. Think of these guys. They got up from whatever they were doing that day and decided, here's what just happened. This isn't right. We're going to go bury this man, despite the fact that it may have been unpopular or dangerous or disgusting. Uh, they, they were willing to do this job, and they thought, this is the right thing to do. And it may not be easy, and it may not be popular, but we're going to do the right thing. Hopefully, our own devotion has an ever-growing resume of service to the Lord, where we're expressing our thankfulness to the Lord and our, our love for the Lord and our faith in the Lord with real, actual acts of service Uh, to uh, other believers and to the world around us. Verse 3, Saul, however, was ravaging the church, and he would enter house after house, drag off men and women, put them in prison. Saul is contrasted here not as a devout man, but as a destroyer. Now, his friend, Dr. Luke, I think, shows a little bit of grace, as much grace as he can muster here as he has to report Saul's brutality against the church. Because Paul will later fill out the report of what he was really doing in uh, other testimonies that he gives or writings that he wrote. He says he not only dragged off innocent people to prison, he said this also, I persecuted Christians to the death. In synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in Christ imprisoned and beaten. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In all the synagogues, I often tried to make them blaspheme. I persecuted God's church to an extreme degree and tried to destroy it. 
running for their lives, having been thoroughly rejected by the leaders of Israel, their own countrymen. The Christians did not lose heart. They did not declare God unfaithful. They didn't turn their backs on the gospel. Rather, here's what happened. Verse 4, so those who were scattered went on their way preaching the message of good news. And you know what? It was still good news. And I think that's pretty remarkable based off of what was going on uh, in these people's circumstances, they say, hey, I still have good news to tell you. What news is that? Oh, it's the news that got me kicked out of Jerusalem. Let me know if you see a guy. He looks, uh, he's kind of short. He might have an eye problem. There's a guy, his name is Saul. If you see him, could you give me a heads up? He's trying to murder me. But in the meantime, the thing he wants to murder me about is really great news for you and your family. Can I tell you about Jesus Christ and how he died to save you from your sins? It's amazing. Still good news. And you know, they still wanted to tell their Jewish countrymen about it. In fact, when Luke will circle back to talk about this time period over in chapter 11, he writes this, those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except Jews. And they still loved their people, these people who were hunting them down. So remarkably, despite the violence and the danger and the difficulty, the message remained the same. And at first, even the audience remained the same. Their circumstances had changed, but Christianity had not changed. They didn't get together and decide, man, it's time to rebrand, or we got to change the, our messaging here to be more culturally acceptable. Can we hire like a PR person? We, we, we need some help here. But people aren't getting the message. No, none of that happened. Neither did a powerful wave of persecution lead to a massive falling away. These Christians in the book of Acts were too strong, too full of the Spirit for that. Instead, it was like a wind blowing seeds into far fields where new crops would grow. The good news propelled the Christians and secured them and filled them even as exiles on the run. Now, if you read commentaries or listen to enough studies on this passage, a majority of them will at this point suggest or outright declare that it was God who sent the persecution in order to get the Christians out of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria since they were dragging their feet. What did Jesus say? You're going to go in Jerusalem and then you'll go to Judea and Samaria and to the rest of the world. And they weren't doing that. So what did God do? Well, it suggested or said, well, God, we have decided sent persecution to light a fire under the church. They say that the church was in a rut or were unwilling to voluntarily obey what Jesus had told them to do. They say that had God not compelled his church to leave through persecution and forced them out by using this violence, many of the Christians would never have discovered their gifts. Thanks, God. What an awful thing to say. What a horrifying accusation to make about our God. For one thing, if he had to send persecution because the church refused to preach outside Jerusalem, why is it that none of the apostles found their way out? All the 12, they hang out in Jerusalem. They don't make it. He didn't mean to say that this big motivation forgot to include the apostles, that they stay in Jerusalem and everybody else gets pushed out? Why is it that uh, if this was God's way of getting Christians out to fulfill the Great Commission, why did they not immediately start preaching to the Gentiles? It says they went out of their way to not preach to Gentiles. It will be Peter, an apostle still in Jerusalem, who will break that seal in chapter 10, right? Now listen, imagine a man who has a wife. He loves his wife, so he says, and his hope is that each day his wife will have the home cleaned and dinner served by five o'clock sharp. That's what he wants. 
And let's say he's asked his wife uh, a few times over the years, clean the house and have dinner served by 5 o'clock. Well, life happens, right? And the man finds that they're not always eating at the stroke of five. There's still some laundry to fold or some dishes in the sink. And so what does this husband decide to do? He decides he's going to hire a gang to break into the house and savagely beat his wife without mercy. That'll be the motivation that she needs and, you know, so that she can do what he wants her to do. Can you imagine such a man? We have words for a person like that. And yet, how quick many writers are to describe God this way. The church is the bride of Christ. And they're saying, yeah, God had to go in there and slap them around a little bit, kill some of those people, because after all, what were they doing? Tens of thousands of people were being saved. And, and well, not as fast as we want them to. Okay, you know, <laughs> commentator, when you preach a sermon and 5,000 people get saved in that instant, maybe you can talk to me about the plan of evangelism. But in the meantime, let's be really careful of the kind of way that we talk about the character and the nature of God. Rather, Luke describes in these verses a God of tender care, a God who stands to welcome his servants home, a God who cares about your suffering, a God who is willing to forgive and redeem even the worst man on the planet and transform him into the greatest Christian of all time, a God whose good is greater than any bad the world could possibly unleash filling his people with such love and such grace that they can go happily into exile with the gospel on their lips, preaching a message of hope to their enemies. That's the Lord, not some wife abuser. And so, tangent over. In this world, we may face some really bad news, right? And bad news may come suddenly and severely. But the good news is that when even those things happen to us, the result can still be the advance of the gospel in spite of the bad and the transformation of lives. And we know that we are looking forward to eternal glory, life everlasting in heaven, where we will once and for all be separated from sin and suffering and difficulty and opposition and death. And so wherever you've been scattered, be filled by the Holy Spirit, gaze toward heaven, proclaim the message of good news about our tender Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.